Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 62, I speak with Wade Kingsley, the founder of The Ideas Business. We discuss how he knew at seven years old he wanted to work in radio and how he made that dream a reality straight out of high school. Why turning 40 years old after two decades in the radio business made him decide to start his own company and how a very helpful manager gave him the support and parachute needed to launch and quit his day job. How creative problem solving allowed him to build a business doing nearly half a million dollars per year in annual revenue and become one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. If you're looking to use creativity to help your business solve problems, check out www.theideasbusiness.com. That's T-H-E-I-D-E-A-S-B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S.com. So I'm here with Wade Kingsley, the founder of The Ideas Business. Welcome to the podcast, Wade. Thanks, Derek. How are you? Yeah, doing really well. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started the ideas business? What did you study? What type of companies were you working in? What sort of jobs? Well, when I was seven, uh, I wanted to get into radio. That was my thing. I loved listening to the radio. My mum was a big radio listener. I loved it. It sounded like the people who were on the radio were having fun. And then you realise, oh, people get paid to do that. That sounds like a good career. So it was all about radio for me. So I did media studies at high school. Uh, I didn't do a tertiary degree. I went straight to work. Uh, Luckily enough, in Adelaide, where I grew up, to get some work straight away at a local radio station. And so it all came about from sort of a, a, my creative career now has come from a history uh, in radio. And even though I never had the great radio voice, to go on the air, uh, I've quickly found that there are lots of jobs behind the scenes that uh, I really enjoyed and I was good at and, and people wanted to give me opportunities. So I, I made a good career out of radio. And were you an AM listener, FM back in the day? Were you listening to all political talk back? Were you listening to the music, the band, a bit of both? Uh, what were you sort of listening to in the early days? Well, funnily enough, I think one of the things that got me into radio was music. I loved music. Uh, growing up in the 80s, there was plenty of great in excess Aussie Crawl, ACDC, uh, anything like that that I really loved. And so I think music got me into it. But ironically, my first job in radio was at a talkback station and I was answering calls from listeners. I was booking and organising guests to appear on the radio. So I spent sort of the early part of my 20s in a very foreign place for a 20-year-old, which is talkback radio, and I got quite addicted. I, I was a bit of a news junkie. Um, really liked the idea of journalism and news and and that kind of stuff. And I love sport as well. So this was kind of like a a, a great place for me. So while my friends were keeping up with the trend on music, I I wasn't. (laughs) I could keep up with the news, but not the music. (laughs) And so were the people around you, like obviously everyone, you know, knows what the radio is and they hear it. Were, Were they supportive of that or did they say you haven't got the voice for it or there's only a handful of very lucrative jobs in it. It's a very niche industry. Or um, what were the people around you when you said, you know, I dream of being on radio, being working radio, were people supportive and thought, oh, that's fantastic? Or were they saying, no, no, get a different job? That's not, it's sort of like the entertainment industry, you know, it's a tough sort of tough racket. No, very supportive. Um, particularly my mum was very supportive. Um, I'm very close with my grandparents. They were very supportive. You know, I, I was the first person in my family to do something like that. I didn't have a, a history of anyone in the family who had been in the uh, media or entertainment industries. Um, but because I loved it so much, you know, it, to me, it was like turning a passion into a job. And so because, you know, I was the kid that had kind of like the home radio station and, um, <laughs> you know, was playing, well, I guess it was CDs. Maybe I won't age myself here. It was probably cassettes before that. <laughs> um, and I was always doing it. So I think that, that it was a natural evolution to, you know, that, that the, the home radio station was my lemonade stand. I, was, I wasn't doing it for money. I was doing it for love. And so then if I could do it for money as well. Um, but yeah, no, very supported in that. 
And so everyone sees the front stage, you know, what comes out through the airwaves, and you get a job in the backstage, you know, seeing how the sausage gets made. What were some of those early surprises or lessons, ones you're actually talking to filtering callers or running around the studio or sort of seeing, you know, what most people never see, right, they're just passively sort of consuming the, the radio? Well, I think one of my early lessons was that, I mean, I was in a really interesting position because I was joining the workforce and I was... In talk radio, the average age of the people on the air, but also mm-hmm. probably off the air, was, was mm-hmm. quite a bit older. Um, you know, later in my career, I worked for Nova, and that was a very younger kind of feel when I was sort of in my sort of late 20s, early 30s. And I was probably about the age of everyone else. My first job at the talkback station, I was very much the youngest there by a long shot. And so generationally, it was quite different. Um I would say that, you know, people were really good in sharing their knowledge. Um, I think when you get to a certain stage of your career, you realise how much that you do want to give back. You know, a lot of people do. And uh, I was lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time where I had all these sort of legends of Adelaide radio, which, you know, is a, a, you know, (laughs) it's a big fish in a small pond for sure. But they were legendary. I'd listened to them. My mum had listened to them. And they were really nice and generous people. You know, they... They had their quirks, as most people in the entertainment industry do, but they were all lovely and generous and, and helped me learn. I, I often say that I didn't do a tertiary degree, but I had the best education because for the first four years of my career, I was learning lessons that would last me a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. And so how did you go from there to wanting to start your own business? Was the ideas business the first time you had a crack at sort of starting something? Or were you running little things on the side while you were working radio throughout your 20s? I would say that I was always an entrepreneur. Like I was always doing things inside companies that were new or different. So after that sort of first role, which, you know, the first station, I was there for about four years. Um, I, I then worked for the same company for about 15 years, but had a different job every two. And what I learned through that experience was every role that I had was kind of something that hadn't really been done before. So I, you know, when radio started embracing what was then just websites, um, before it became sort of more digital media, uh, I was the first sort of person in the radio company to be managing websites on behalf of the radio business. So I was learning all the time and, I think that the journey of being an entrepreneur helps you then realise what you want to do on your own. Uh, I was lucky in, to do it in a supportive environment where it was, you know, initiatives were well-funded and, and I was resourced, uh, but also I could make mistakes. And, you know, one of my early bosses put me in a job and said, look, you're going to make a lot of mistakes in this job, but that, and that's what we want. You know, we want you to make mistakes because you'll learn. Um, so that supportive environment was really critical. And then after about... Uh, pretty much to the day, 20 years in in radio and also media agency. I ran a media agency for a couple of years. I Look, I'm, I'm loathe to say I hit 40 and it all came to me, but <laughs> the, cl- the cliche is kind of true, is that mm. I hit 40 and went, well, I've spent the first 20 years of my career working for other people, helping them build empires. I'd like to build my own. And the first thought was that I want to do it. I didn't know what I could do. I had a rough idea, but I didn't know for sure. I didn't know how I could make money out of it. Uh, I didn't know what value I'd be to people, really, even though I'm a pretty confident person. I was still a bit unsure of that. And so the the journey to getting to the ideas business, which I started in 2017, was how can I parlay what I've learned into helping build an empire myself? Now, I use empire as a very broad you know, hopefully not mm. to sound like a white term. I'm not, I'm not trying to say I'm going to end up with a huge empire. What mm. I mean is I've got my own kids. Um, I would love to have built something that they can work in or benefit from as opposed to me being a salaried employee for someone to do that. So, no, I'm not grandiose in design <laughs> of, like, I have this massive empire. It's more that instead of doing it for other people and being a salaried employee, how can I do something for myself that my kids can benefit from down the track? And so when you were doing these intrapreneurial sort of um, projects inside businesses, were they highly contested roles and it was very hard to get or did you just put your hand up and most people didn't want to do something new and they just wanted their salary and follow a process? Yeah, it's the latter because um, one of my mantras has always been if you don't ask, you don't get. 
And I think because I had that early background in the in the talk situation, talk back radio situation, um, I learned that asking questions isn't a bad thing. Um, questions take you places. So I, I was naturally curious anyway, but I think that kind of is where my the rubber hit the road for me is that if I ask, there's a chance someone will say yes. If I don't ask, they'll definitely say no. So I learned about the business side of things of, of the radio industry. I asked lots of questions of people that I felt I could learn from and they were giving of information. But, you know, when it came to actually, you know, getting those opportunities, it was largely because I expressed an interest and I said, I'm really interested in doing stuff. Even if I didn't know what the thing was, I was more about, look, I'm curious about that space. Can we can we look at that? Or is there something I can be doing, you know, in this in this area? So, you know, that, that's been one of my mantras. I still use it to this day that, you know, particularly when I'm working with new clients is that if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah, so you would almost be pitching them internally. Hey, I think we can monetize this. I think we can add an extra thing here. I think we can capture more audience there. And, and again, were they generally receptive? Like, so they would give you an opportunity, but was it an uphill battle to, to get them to change a different model, embrace technology, do something different? Or, or were they, they say, all right, here's your budget and don't blow up the whole thing. But as long as you have a go, like you, know, like you said, we'll let you make some mistakes and, and try and do something. Yeah, very supportive. And I, and I think, you know, I was probably the right person in the right place. Um, I'm very lucky in the, in the extent that the, the talkback station that I went to work for first had just been bought um, by a larger company, a UK-owned company called the Daily Mail Group. And they'd appointed a really innovative um, leader in the media industry, a guy called Paul Thompson, who founded the Austereo Network. Um, they appointed him to... Fa- uh, found a network which then became Nova. So um, I was I was a young guy who was keen on opportunities, was keen to ask for those opportunities, was spotting things that could be done differently or better or however you want to phrase it. And I was in a company that was ready to grow. Uh, I wasn't in a legacy business that had, you know, was in a defensive position trying to hold market share. I was in a is in a business that was actively looking for people like me. So me and others who were happy to share ideas, happy to pitch stuff, happy to do the work, you know, mm-hmm. happy to, to do, put in the blood, sweat and tears. You know, I, in my first four years, I worked mostly seven days a week for, mm. for not much dough, but I did it because I loved it and also I felt like my input was valued, so therefore I kept giving it. Yeah, and so you have that this long and successful career in radio, learning all sides of it, getting a lot of freedom, like you said, and sort of um, practice, it's sort of running things. What was it like in the first 12 months once you actually said, I'm going to start the ideas business and you went out to, you know, doing something on your own? Like you said, you had the vision, the, the family sort of future empire, so to speak. But what was the reality like sort of, you know, having to um, find out what you wanted to do, like you said, your own truck, and also, you know, turn that into a, a profitable sort of business? Well, the, the best advantage I had, Derek, was that I had a very supportive manager as my last manager in in paid employment. So um, yeah, I'd hit the 20-year mark. Um, I had a guy who I worked, reported to and worked for, who was I was really respected. Um, we had a great mutual respect and he was just an all-round great guy. So and what was interesting actually was he had a, a good life journey himself. So he'd, he'd been like me, had gone out on his own and had come back to do a, a, a corporate role. And so when I said to him, listen, I don't know what it is, but I'm thinking of doing something on my own. Um, so therefore, and I effectively sort of was handing in my notice, albeit with sort of six-month six month runway because I was brave but perhaps not crazy <laughs> brave. Um, I said, look, I'm thinking of doing something on my own. The, the thing he said back to me really set up the trajectory of the success of the business was, can I be your first client? And and so what that meant was that you know I've been I'm a big believer in you've got to push yourself off the cliff in life. Mm-hmm. Um, is that if you wait, things things won't necessarily happen. You have to go and happen to things. And so he gave me a parachute. You know I jumped off the cliff, but he gave me the parachute. And the parachute was look, whatever you're going to do, we value your skills and input, and we'd like to be we the business would like to be your first client. So. That gave me the the momentum to go, right, well, I'm going to go and do this. So with that as as the starting point in July 2017, uh, having a paid client on the books on day one um, was great. And it meant then I could do give them some value, provide good work for them. But I had one eye on, okay, who's client number two? Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people don't get that opportunity. A lot of people are side hustling and then go out on their own with no clients or 
um, find other paths. But my path, again, has kind of been paved with a, a blend of um, good luck and good fortune, but also, you know, a desire to want to do things. And 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 hopefully those things combined have meant that the the early success, I'm coming up to five years in the ideas business in July, hopefully that, that those five years have been uh, driven by that combination of good luck and, and wanting to succeed. And what was that first project? Like, was it similar to sort of the work you were doing, but so, okay, was it kind of on a contract basis? Was it, hey, I want to go in this way. Can I, can you give me the chance to do it? And because it's not a huge investment, they're willing to do it or, you know, how, how, what was that first sort of project with that first client who trusted you? Well, it was, and the project's the right word for it. So, so basically I'd gone from a corporate executive role where I was leading teams. You know, when I, when I left my last corporate role, I had a team of 70 mm-hmm. across Australia that were, were working in and around, uh, in, in my part of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought, well, I don't know what I want to do, but I'll do it on my own. And so the, the guy that I said that to and said, uh, you know, I want to be your first client. He, in his mind, had a couple of projects ready to go. Um, and so they were aligned to the kind of work I was doing, but you know, it's the kind of work that when you've got someone outside working on it, you can actually provide a different perspective and you can put a little more time and dedication and research into it. If it's on someone's to-do list internally, it's kind of was one of those projects mm. that falls down the falls down the priority list. So he kind of thought here's an opportunity for a guy who knows our business, um, who you know has some skills, can can perhaps provide perspectives on these things. And that first the first client engagement went for two years. You know, there was there was mm. projects that I could do that changed over that time. There were, there were you know, programs that projects were quite specific to the radio business at that time, some marketing style projects. But in the end of the day, they were things that could add value to the business that I could provide a perspective and on and, and execute. Yeah. And so you've um, grown the business, doing over half a million annual sales, becoming one of the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. Um what was that sort of driver of that growth? Was it client number two, number three, building up, understanding more what you did? Was it, you know, just bigger projects? Was it moving outside radio or have you sort of stuck to that as a core area? Or, or what was that sort of growth journey like? And then what was it like handling that sort of growth when you're actually, the empire starts to take shape and then you've actually got to, you know, deliver on that and manage that? Well, there's a few chapters, I think, in this story. So I might just take a little bit of time unpacking that question, Derek. So, so the first five years have have been a tale of lots of different things. So two, or we're now at two and a half, I guess, years of the five have been in COVID. Um, but the first two were obviously had that, I had the parachute, um, had the safety net of, you know, going out there exploring. But what I what I didn't do, I think, helped me. I didn't try and grow too fast. I wasn't, I, I, you know, the business in early days was me, you know, mm. I'm, I'm the product, right? I'm, mm. I'm the consultant. I'm the person who I'm not making widgets and shipping them overseas. I'm basically the guy who you're hiring to do a job for mm-hmm. you, right? Mm-hmm. So, so there's a bandwidth, there's a capacity there. And so once I had some bandwidth capacity, what I tried to do in those early days is try and find a clone of the first client. So who is someone who's doing similar things? but maybe in a different territorial location um, or someone who is um, wasn't a competitor of them but could be a like-minded industry because I knew that the sell would be much easier to say, hey, listen, I, I'm, I'm here. This is what I do. This is how I can add some value. I'm doing it for this guy and this is what this guy says about me. So, therefore, client number two, number three, number four are going to be more like those. And they were. They were other radio companies from other parts of the world effectively. And so I, I reinvested in... You know, early days, I didn't do any paid above the line marketing. Mm-hmm, Basically, mm-hmm. what I invested in those early days was getting myself known to people who could make those decisions. So I would fly myself to conferences and, and do conference speaking. Um, I would do networking, something I'd shunned for 20 years. I don't know why, <laughs> but it was always one of those things that I, re- I really didn't like networking. Uh, but I started to kind of, you know, again, push myself off the cliff there and do some more networking. So so I used the opportunity to try and find like-minded proxies, if you will, of, of that first client. And so what, what's happened over then from year sort of zero to two to five, and I'll come back to COVID in a sec, is that I've kind of slowly been moving away from, from media specifically and working on other creative services consultancies. So I'll do branding projects for clients. Um, I'll facilitate workshops. Um, I'll do marketing plans. I'll help do brand design and brand strategy. Um, you know, I've, I've 
do more training and, and education now on creative thinking, creative problem solving. So I've developed an online course. So it's almost like I kind of think of, uh, I always think of a business like, a bit like the swimming pool and some businesses stick to one lane and they do that really well. And they're, they're, after, the, they're after the time, right? They're after the lap speed and, and making sure they go to the end of the pool really quickly. Um, I like to think of the, as the, my business as the whole pool and, you know, I'm doing really well in lane one, but I want to make sure that lane two gets off the blocks well and three and four and five. So there's a multitude of products and services that I can offer that all sit within the creative services banner is, is effectively the category or creative consultancy. Um, and so then that that's kind of been my secret is to try and diversify my income where possible. The COVID component added a layer of complexity because we were really growing really fastly out of the blocks. Um, like most people, COVID caused problems. I, I'm absolutely fortunate to say they didn't cause as many problems as other people did. But, you know, I was on JobKeeper. I was pulling money out of my super. I was trying to stay afloat just to continue the pool analogy. Um, and really what happened there was I discovered a concept that I now have as sort of my core value for my business, which is how do I add value? So it came about because in COVID, there's a lot of period of introspection because a lot of people um, in my line of work, consultancy, had more time because they didn't have as much work or clients. So I, I started reading a lot more and doing a bit more research. And the thing that kind of come to my head was that um, there was a quote from Einstein about, you know, don't strive to be a success, strive to be a value. And so I've gone, well, how can I be more of value to people in this COVID time? So you know, what, what can I do? And, and for one client that I picked up, which was client number sort of five, um, they pulled back completely. They said, listen, we just don't have the work for you. And they're based in the US. Mm. And I was going to the US every couple of months to work with them. And they said, look, COVID, you can't travel. Um, this is before Zoom was a thing, believe it mm. or not. Um, <laughs> you know, no one thought you could do business over FaceTime, but anyway. So it was, it was basically like, we can't use you. And so I thought, well, how can I be of value? So I just said to them, listen, I know you guys are having some challenges. So I'll work for free. Like I've got time. I've got some existing projects that can help me with cash flow. I've got really no fixed overheads. You know, I, I've got a home office. So, you know, as long as I'm living in a home, I've got an office. Uh, I, have, I had one employee at that time who we, we reduced hours and kept him on. But the reality was I could add more value, which was giving them more time. What that's meant is then as things have recovered, I've got a much stronger relationship with that client and we're doing more together. And they're now my highest yielding client in terms of revenue um, because, you know, at that period, I chose to not put my head in the sand. I went, well, what more can I do? And let's not worry about it from a financial perspective. Albeit, I know I'm lucky in that space. Not everyone could do that. But I was able to, so I did. And so, like some industries are sort of stereotypically more seen as open to innovation than others, you know, like people make fun of maybe law firms and other ones as being very stubborn and then, you know, tech and um, maybe marketing is more digital, more sort of uh, ideas driven. How does sort of radio sit in that continuum? You know, it is a, a, an old media, some people say, a legacy media, but then it is still has very good cut through and importance in, in different demographics and, and um when you were focused early on on radio as a client base, right, radio sort of companies and that was your background, did you find they sort of um, were open to new ideas, they could see the writing on the wall, podcast, different media, digital, and they're like, well, we have to do something or were they sort of stubborn like some industries where they struggle and just kind of say, well, write it down and we don't care and we're not going to do, do something new? Yeah, well, look, I think I guess the point I would make to that is that when – I've been engaged by clients in the radio sector. There's probably two things that are, are different to their their own competitors. One is that they are largely now have diversified revenue streams. So radio companies in the 80s and 90s were that. They owned a heap of radio stations in different markets around the country, uh, wherever whichever country they're in. Now there's not one radio client I work with that derives all of their revenue from radio. Some of them have majority, but a lot of them are now growing revenue in podcasts, um, in digital digital platforms and digital advertising, um, in in commercialising their IP, uh, their creative thinking, their solutions, you know, acting more like a, a traditional media agency would with advertising clients in terms of range of service. So I've tended to work with companies that probably maybe saw the writing on the wall and, and invested and grew and diversified. So that, that's kind of one part. The second part is I think if they're having a conversation with me based on what I've done in the past, 
they are more likely to be wanting it already and I just happen to provide the solution. So the, the problem they have is they want to in, innovate. The problem they have is they want to change things. And my position in the market as a, as a service or product is to help facilitate that, help them do it, either, either hands-on from me or help them do it with their people. So I probably don't get exposed to companies that are set in their ways and going backwards and, you know, they just don't sort of knock on the door and I didn't go knocking on their door either. So they might be completely fine making their living, but I don't really have much exposure to them. No, so like attracts like and, you know, if you're bringing ideas, you attract but one ideas and those don't want them, you'd never cross paths probably anyway and even if you did, they wouldn't, you know, have much of a conversation. And so sometimes in a lot of businesses and industries, the hardest thing is kind of maintaining what you've got, like you said, the lane that you're in and that's working while building the lane for like five or 10 years. And, and you know, you don't want to blow up what, what's working and, until you've got the next thing, but you don't want to obviously have nothing invested in the future. Otherwise, again, if that's sort of um, what you've got stops work. So, so how do you, being an ideas business, being in this sort of space, pushing people out of their comfort zone, new ideas, balance that where people say hey this is how we do things you know think of the old blockbuster story where obviously they're making all their money in late fees so they don't want to buy netflix and and change their model but you know managing that transition phase where it's not always obvious what the the next step is and and how the future is and you don't want to sort of fully let go of um what's working but also you got to start pushing into new platforms new channels um how do you sort of counsel some of your clients through that sort of hard transition and strategic aspect well, again, I think that, you know, they, they arrive at the engagement point with me, particularly in the sense that they've probably already arrived at a point of view that that's what they need to do. That, and and I, can, I fill in the gaps on the how, how, can that, how can you do that? How can you achieve what you want to achieve? So it's probably a, like a mindset thing and a, and a leadership capability um, that you know, if people are asking me about that stuff, uh, I don't have to kind of sell them in on the idea of innovation, sell them in on the idea of, of making sure that um, they've got to grow in different ways. So let me answer that question more from the perspective of my business, because one of the things I do get challenged on from time to time is, okay, so you're already, or you're always encouraging us to do things differently and get noticed and, and that, but you do, how do you do it? Um, and, and I think it's an interesting lens because I have basically decided that, so in, in this kind of, you know, midlife crisis stage of hitting 40 and doing my own thing, one of the things I absolutely did not want to do was just start a business for the sake of it. And what I mean by that is just be another another spectator in the crowd. Like if I wanted to do that, you know, and no disrespect, I probably would have opened up a fish and chip shop or a news agent or something. And that's not to, not to, to put slight on those industries, but for me personally, I could just go and do what everyone else is doing and, and put my own name on it, but effectively I'm doing the same products and services, and I knew I didn't want to do that. And so the reason I even called it the ideas business is because I wanted this to be a business of ideas. I wanted I wanted to be in the business of ideas, you know, as in like creativity and commercial outcomes, those two things, so ideas and business, but it's a diversified services business because I'd get bored, Derek. I think if I was just doing the same thing and going, great, I'm going to develop this one thing and I'm just going to slog that for 20 years and then retire rich and happy, I would be bored out of my mind. And so, I've, you know, when you read all the business books and they say focus on your one thing and then don't expand too, too readily into other things, I just kind of called bullshit on that because I just thought, well, I really don't care if that doesn't work because I can always go back to a salary job. Mm. And my thinking was, if I, if I make the worst business decisions of all time and blow up my own business, oh, well, I'll go back to doing what I was doing before. I was never like, you know, I didn't have a mortgage, which was probably helpful. Um, I didn't have to put all bets on like funding this thing. I didn't mm -hmm. seek outside investment. I wasn't answering to anyone who wanted a return within two years at, you know, X percent. For me, it was all about let's, let's have a go. I was building a lemonade stand, but I didn't want to just sell lemonade. Uh, I wanted to go and why, why does it have to be a stand? You know, why do I just do what everyone else is doing? So I deliberately set up my business with a view to go, I want to be creative about setting up a business. I want to be innovative in how a business can be set up. I want to have different products and services. I want to have different brands that sit under that. I want to do different things. So every day of the week feels a bit different, which is good for my uh, my own personal well-being and, and how I perform really well is, is doing things differently uh, and not stuck on one thing. 
But also, I didn't know what was going to work. Um, I took the approach they'll plant many seeds and see what grows. And some of them are growing quickly, some of them are growing more slowly, some haven't grown at all. But that's okay. Um, if I just kind of kept watering one plant, I think I would just be, I'd probably be back in a salary job already because I'd be too bored. Yeah, and I think you're right. Most people don't plant enough seeds, take enough sort of, you know, calculated sort of risks in what they're doing. Um, so, so it's rare that you need to rein people in. They're doing too much. It's always sort of encouraging them to do more. So is there a client engagement, uh, something that you've done that really you think sort of sums up well or really demonstrates well what you do and, and how you sort of, you know, create that value in an interesting way? Well, I, I guess because I work more on short-term projects, um, for example, in the last month, I've I've been working with a media company in America, a media company in Australia, a service station um, provider, like a petrol mm-hmm. station provider, uh, with a not-for-profit charity group. Uh, I've worked with um, a, a company that uh, does gift cards. So, so they because they're coming from different industries. Um, as I said, media was kind of like the foundation, but I've mm-hmm. gradually mm-hmm. branched away from media a bit is that the growth is coming from being able to provide value and help them solve problems. Um, probably, the, you know, that was one of the key pieces of advice someone gave me when I started the business was, um, number one, get yourself a good accountant, mm-hmm. which I did. Mm-hmm. I was always the, you know, just take the tax return to the H&R block guy for <laughs> 20 years. But, you know, getting a good accountant mm-hmm. set up the structure of the business, that was number one. The second piece of advice was um, is to, to be able to look at different industries and see where you can add value. And, Solving problems for people is essentially what creative thinking and creative services are. So there's not a set path to solve that problem. So how do we create the path? And, and my experience about creating frameworks for problem solving, about doing research around creative thinking and, and, and creative practice in terms of marketing, branding, advertising, things like that, content creation, it's all come about from trying to keep a diversified perspective on what's happening. I hope that answered your question. <laughs> so, so like say, you know, you're talking to a petrol station and they say they have some problem, you know, maybe they, they've lost foot traffic, they're commoditized, um, you know, they're not getting maybe the upsells and things or across their network or, or there's various maybe, industry pressures on their supply chain and you're the ideas guy and they come to you and say, we've got all this pain, how can you sort of add value and help? And, and you, you put it through the framework, where do you sort of begin with someone like that where they've got these complex sort of things? It's not, you know, Obviously, you've got you know transferable skills, but it's not an industry you necessarily know well. How do you sort of learn the industry, bring ideas from your own background, and sort of you know add, add that value and sort of bring a creative solution to those problems? Well, I bring a, I guess I bring a perspective that's not from the industry, which is is deliberate on my part. So let's just play out the the service station example. Um, so it was with a, a holding company that owns independent service stations. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't just with the franchisee that owns the particular outlet. It was with a with a corporate entity that um, services all those outlets. And so you know, again, most challenges in business come down to sales in some mm-hmm. form mm-hmm. um you know people don't usually have problems unless it involves i mean it, sometimes they're staff engagement but usually it's when that when i get involved it's like we need to grow in some form or we want to launch a product in some form so where i start with my naivety about the industry is my advantage i don't go in and go well i know everything about petrol stations i, I know I was going to swear then, but I know hardly anything <laughs> about petrol stations. Um, and so I go from the perspective of, first of all, being curious. So I start with, so tell me about the industry. Tell me about how it works. Tell me how you make money. Tell me what the challenges are in doing that. What has changed over the over the last five years? What changed because of COVID, which is a big question at the moment? What won't go back because of COVID? Um, I my approach to any project is to be curious in that first stage. Once I've been, once I'm curious and I've kind of formed a perspective on diagnosing the problem, <clears throat> I call them creative clinics for a reason because it's it's about you know present the symptoms. And and what I try and do is go, okay, so the best course of a remedy is X, Y, or Z. And I don't try and prescribe that. I I work with companies to go, if you want to get here, first of all, how much is that problem worth to you to solve? Let's put a value on that problem. Because some people make it really feel like this is a problem that's keeping up at night. But when you start framing it as, okay, if we fix that problem, what's it worth? Most of the time, they're not as big as people think. They're kind of like more annoying factors. Like we just can't solve that problem. We need to push through. But 
what it does too is also can gather garner some resources behind it. So if someone says, if we fix this problem, that's worth $10 million to our business. Well, then all of a sudden, first of all, from a from a, um, a perspective of me being a service provider, it gives me scope on how much my worth is in helping them solve that problem. So it helps me price. Um, it helps me go, okay, well, if I can help you solve that, I know that's got to be worth X. Uh, but also it helps them even internally come up with arguments to garner resources to solve that problem. Because if they're framing it just as we want to increase sales, well, okay, but a bean count is going to look at that and go, well, if we just get this consultant in and we increase by 3%, I'm like, well, you're not ambitious enough. Let, let, let's kind of look at it through the lens of if we solve this specific problem that we defined, then that's going to increase sales 10% every single year for 10 years. Then you can put a dollar figure on it and go, wow, okay. And then you start you start kind of cooking with gas. You're like, right, so what are the things we're going to need to do to understand more about the problem? What consumer research are we going to have to commission? Mm-hmm. Um, and then we'll get to the creative solutions phase. It's very much involved in them and me. I'm leading them. I, I, you know, one of the things that I was a little bit hesitant to be in the early days of branding my business was like, I'm the ideas guy. Mm. Like I, I, I'm some sort of guru that will come in and go, <laughs> here's a great idea. You should do this. And then just kind of mic drop and leave the room. And cause that's, that's not me, but also like, that's just, no one wants to work with those guys. Right. So what I wanted to do was go, I can help you build a framework to help you solve your problem to help. I can help you diagnose it and I can help you a path to help you solve it. But it's the idea is not going to come from me. It's going to come from the framework that I've created, the sessions that we run, the process that we go through, so you can create it. Because what you'll do is not only we solve that problem, but you'll learn ways to solve problems if they occur in the future uh, by following some of the set processes that I follow. Yeah, so it's very Socratic, and it's the 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 meta sort of ability to solve problems. It's sort of the real value, I guess, in, in that sense. So, you know, yeah. you've got clients in America. Um, you're traveling around, you're at conferences and trade shows, I imagine a lot, especially pre-COVID, um, you know, seeing all these different types of industries now. Well, what do you see entrepreneurs in Australia doing well? And what do you see maybe compared to other markets or compared to the potential um, areas where they could improve even more? I would say that, you know, what entrepreneurs in Australia are really good at, and look, and I don't think COVID's dented to this, but I don't have any data to back that up, but just as an assumption, is the have a go spirit. You know, I, I think hopefully what's happened is with remote work or hybrid work taking off um, and the acceptance of that. I mean, it was always there, but, you know, employers didn't really accept it. Now there's an acceptance of mm-hmm. it because the CEOs have had to do it too. So all of a sudden mm. it's like, oh, this is a good idea. Um, is hopefully what happens for entrepreneurs is they feel a bit more confident to turn things that have been pastime slash side hustles into more of an ongoing activity. Um, I think that you know, the Australian entrepreneurship, the spirit of trying to try things is good, I, I feel, I, you know, and again, I, I'm working within my own um, level of knowledge here, but I feel like it's good. Where I feel like perhaps other com- other countries may be a bit better, I think, is recommendation and networking. So, you know, like I'm working with with people in America a lot. Like th- these guys, like it's, it's, it's networking, you know, up the wazoo. Like, that we think we network in Australia, but, <laughs> uh, you know, I think our, our kind of, we're not as bold and brash as, as most Americans can be, not all, but most. And so what they, what is sort of built into their DNA is they want to do networking. They want to meet people. They want to see things. What comes from that, particularly for entrepreneurs, is you're building networks all the time. Now in Australia, I think you build networks, like for most people who start on their own, it, it's through some sort of social channel. For me, it's mostly LinkedIn. Um, but, you know, also you, you're kind of building based on your work. So, you know, I, I get referrals from one client to the next and that's how I build a client base. But for entrepreneurs who are just kind of starting out on trying to work out what to do or or work out where to do it, you know, a community is really important. And I, I think that other countries I've noticed, particularly the US, particularly the UK and probably even New Zealand, I would say are a bit, are a bit better than us at people wanting to get out there, people wanting to form networks and therefore going, I really want to introduce you to this person because I don't know if they're going to be good for you, but they're a good person. I think we're a little bit, I don't know, I wouldn't say shy, but not as not as bold as we could be in that space. That, that's something I'd love to see Australians embrace a bit more. 
And is that in terms of like an ecosystem, like there they're trying to connect different people in a similar space who are sort of complementary to work together? You know, the same way you have, you know, Silicon Valley and, you know, you have these little pockets of Hollywood of, you know, all the media and they'll sort of cluster in those sort of geographies. Or do you think it's more there people are sort of supporting the ambitious drives of people? Hey, you've got to meet this person. Hey, here's, this person will help you. And they're trying to, I guess, push each other forward in, in a sort of ambitious way, maybe more so than where we're sort of, like you said, that one step back kind of waiting to, to put the toe um, in the water. Yeah, I- I think they they definitely do support each other. I mean, this is a very broad statement, but they do support each other in a more ambitious way. I think that's a good way to describe it, Derek. Um, I would say that, you know, what would be useful to think about is when I worked for a corporate organisation, one of the things I kept thinking and was reinforced to me all the time was that I was representing that organisation, right? So I'm, I'm Wade Kingsley and I'm from Nova, you know, and... You meet someone at a barbecue, where do you work, Nova? Oh, great. So they're, they're basically making assessments about you based on, you know, your work and what value you could provide and all that stuff. So that, that's all fine. When I got out of it and started working for myself, and I'm the product, right? I have mm. to sell me, which I find a little bit awkward and embarrassing. I can help mm. other people sell their products, but when I'm selling me, I'm, I'm a little bit cagey on it. But one thing I did find helped was making sure that people understood that um, you had something to offer and it, it wasn't going to be like a challenge or it's competitive. And your brand is you because people buy from people. If people sell to people and people buy from people. And if you're human, you're, I think there's a saying that everyone is selling something to someone mm. at some point, right? So we're all, we're all in the selling game. A lot of people go, oh, I'm not in sales. Rubbish. Every single person on the planet is in sales. Whether you're selling to your wife the idea of going to New York on a holiday <laughs> uh, or you're selling to your kids to get something done, the reality is we sell all the time. We just don't, we think it's a bit dirty. We don't like saying it. So when you get yourself adjusted to the fact that you're in sales and then you say, okay, well, I'm representing myself. It, or I'm always looking in conversations for opportunities to say, I can help you with that. I can help you with that. I can add value here. Um, this is something I can do. And I think it's really important that, you know, entrepreneurs take a, take a bold step forward in knowing that at the end of the day, no matter where you've worked before, if you're working for a corporate, is that you represented the brand. But at the end of the day, when you're on your own or you've got a product or you're with a small group of people um, in a smaller business, is that it's it's a person who's going to say yes or no to you and you're a person who has to ask for that yes or no. It's people to people. So that's why I think the networking thing, you know, coming back to that is pretty critical. Um, And, look, COVID has probably you know, dismantled a lot of the normal networking executions functions, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff where people actually do it, golf days and long lunches and drinks functions and whatever. And the challenge will be how do you network in a, an environment where still a lot of people are working from home and don't want to go out and stuff. But, you know, it's a really critical part. Mm. And so you sort of knew at seven what you wanted to do, like I said, and then eventually you went from your your bedroom making your own recordings to sort of being in the actual, in the big leagues and the actual radio stations. But what advice would you give to maybe an 18 to 21 year old who's finishing high school, halfway through uni, and they don't have that, they've got some interest, but they don't actually know where they want to go and what they want to do. Um, what advice would you sort of tell them or, or what, what to think, or again, maybe a framework for thinking through what they should sort of try or, or where they should look? Well, the, the two things that um, one thing I did do and one thing I didn't do, and I wish I'd done earlier. So the, the thing that I did do all throughout my career, and I'd never understand why people don't do more of this, is learn about how business works. So if you're, I don't know, if you're a florist, right, or you're a printing company or you sell bottles of something, so you, you're focused really on your product, which is fine. You have to be. You have to know your product. You have to know um, what problem it solves for your customers, um, why people want to buy it, et cetera. I've never understood people who don't then go and think of it in the broader business context. So the, the cheapest education anyone can get in Australia is a subscription to the Australian Financial Review. Now, I'm not saying you have to read it cover to cover every day, but I always pick up something. You know, and it may be unrelated to my industry, but I might go, oh, gee, that's interesting. The, you know, the banking sector is going through a bit of a change because of mm. afterpay. And, you know, they're all trying to get into buy now, pay later schemes. Mm. So mm. I'll, file, I'll file that away. It may have no relevance to me today, but I'll just take that piece of interest and, and file that away. Um, you learn about what 
profitability is. You learn about what investment is. Learning how business, commercial, commerce works, even without a formal commerce or MBA or whatever, is really critical. There are a million billion websites. There are so many books. There are articles being published every day. Take 10 minutes a day and just learn about business and industry and how the whole machine works. Because at the end of the day, if you want to be an entrepreneur, you're part of the machine somewhere. So you can't, even though I'm, as I said, with a swimming pool, trying to rewrite the rule book a bit for me, I'm still I'm still swimming like everyone else is. So you've got to learn, you've got to learn what goes on. So I did do that and I'm really grateful I did. And I do it every single day. I go looking for things to learn. The thing I didn't do, and I wish I had it done earlier, was get a good accountant. You know, yeah. and I, I mentioned that earlier is that, <laughs> Um, you know, you can't, when you're younger, I think you think the accountants are pain in the ass and then they're just to do your tax, which, you know, I guess they are. But the sooner you talk to an accountant and say, look, this is what I'm thinking. Even if I don't get anywhere yet, this is my path. I want to do this and then I want to do that. What they'll help you with if you find a good one, and I've got a great one, is they will help you maximise your cash flow. They will help you um, legally minimise your tax. Uh, they will help you uh, understand what you need to be thinking about and doing from a financial perspective so you can realise your dreams. Um, if you want to do that thing, the sooner you have a conversation with a good accountant who understands what you want to do and can help you, the better. And I, look, if I had it done that, you know, 10 years earlier, I probably would be a much bigger company by now and I also would be would have left corporate life a lot earlier. I don't regret not doing it mm. for the sake that I've had the journey that I've had and the experience mm. I've had. But I also know that if I was to do time over again, an accountant would have perhaps helped me realise a more healthy financial position earlier. Mm. And so you've, um, again, you've started the ideas business, you've got some traction, you've got uh, some industry diversification, different geographies. What does a sort of five to 10 year direction, vision sort of plan look like um, for, for the company and what you're trying to do, where you're trying to head or do you have a goal or a target that you're trying to reach? No, not, not a target. Uh, and I think that's important. I mean, I, I've got the, as I said, I've got the advantage and it, it is a strategic decision on my part not to bring external investment into my business for now. Mm-hmm. Never say never, but I, I don't think I would go down that path. What I'm doing then is I'm kind of bootstrapping it myself and making sure that um, I've got control over the direction. And maybe because I've had a history of people saying, go ahead and make mistakes, we'll support you. You know, I'm, I'm okay with making mistakes. Obviously, no one wants to make a mistake that means you lose your house. You, mm. you kind of want to uh, assess your risk. But I'm, I, I guess what I'm doing, I have done and I will continue to do for the next five, 10 years is not put a number on it. I'm not trying to reach a target. I'm not trying to go, I want to get a million bucks worth of sales in 2025. You know, if, if that happens, great. But I'm not, that's not my aim. My aim is to do things that are of interest that can add value and helps people solve problems. So I, you know, I mentioned the planting seeds analogy mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. What I'm doing this year is just continuing to plant seeds. I probably didn't plant as many during COVID because mm-hmm. it came about keeping the plants that were in the garden alive. <laughs> um, uh, but what it is now is like, right, things are starting to kick back. I'm not going to wait for things to happen. Um, you know, you mentioned about earlier about the the growth in the business in the last year. You know, we every single year including during COVID, we've grown in revenue. And this year, again, we'll beat what we did last year. But it's come about because we're going, let's let's try some of this. Let's put a small investment in uh, a person or a resource or something to look into this area a bit more. What can we develop in this area that could be of value and how does it solve a problem for a client of that industry? So, you know, I'm happy to be transparent. We're, we're looking at doing a creative education program in schools. Um I, th- I think there's a huge challenge in in schools. I've got two kids in primary school, and I see this firsthand. Is that even though they go to a good school, I think what happens is that we think creativity is the arts, uh, it's music, it's painting, it's all those kind of fun things. And yes, it is. That's that's just one application. You can be creative with coding, with science, with math, um, with other English, and and things like that. So I'm I'm all about trying to get into the school system and help teachers help kids learn that creative problem solving is the skill that we want to teach. Creativity as its practice can take many different forms. Problem solving is a core skill. So so we've got a research project that I'm funding now this year, hopefully launches next year as a pilot program to be teaching creative thinking in schools. Um, I've got a not-for-profit mental health 
uh, initiative that is, you know, the seed has been planted, having some early conversations around. Um, I'm probably not going to scale the business in a large way in other sort of media clients, but looking for diversified industries because every client I work with, I learn. Um, and I can apply that learning to the next project that comes along. So, you know, across the spectrum of five years, yes, it was probably well, probably 75% media in the early days, but it's down sort of about 40% media in terms of revenue now and 60% is coming from non-media, which means it's all diversified. It comes from lots of different categories, lots of different industries, and, and hopefully I can keep providing some good value and help them solve problems. Yeah, and I guess some people even argue much more businesses are in the media business these days they have their own branded publications podcast channels you know marketing is sort of you know so people like you said don't necessarily think of themselves being an ex-business but they've got a you know media channel and that's their marketing that's their distribution um excellent exactly and look as an example one client who engaged me on a project recently you know they were talking big big plans around marketing right so we want to we want to make a big splash with marketing whatever at the end of the day i I didn't opt out of that, but I backed away from it. And I basically left them with one thing to do, which was, okay, so why don't you go to Google and look up at your Google My Business listing? And when you think about the customer channels where they're coming from for this particular business, most people are going to Google looking for someone like you and you don't have a Google My Business listing and your competitors do. Fix that. That's a problem you can solve now. Here are the techniques and tools you can do it. Here's the SEO um, principles you need to work on, blah, 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 blah. Here's the content, et cetera. And that's already resulted in a turnaround of sales. So I think great that people go, I want to think marketing, I want to invest. Awesome. But I'm like, what does the shop front window look like? Um, Let's start there. And so I will re-engage with that client down the path. But for now, it was kind of like there's stuff you can be doing. So I think that's that's a critical part is making sure that you can solve problems that make a difference as opposed to like, oh, this is a big problem. We, we just, where do we start? What do we do? Yeah, excellent. And do you have any final thoughts or words you'd like to leave the audience with? Um, well, I appreciate the opportunity, Derek. I, I also want to just, fun fact, I'm not the first Wade on your podcast. Normally <laughs> I'm, the first, I'm the first Wade to do anything, right? Like there's not yeah, any Wade yeah. there. Um, I always get a bit of a thrill when I see Matthew Wade in the cricket because my name gets mentioned on TV. <laughs> but there's not many other Wades. So I was pleased to see you already had another Wade on the podcast. Um, I would say, you know, the opportunity to talk about this stuff is really important. I, I always like to give back to people because I've ha- I've got experience now in this space that I'm always happy to share. So if anyone wants to even just have a chat with me personally about their business, how they're going, not from a an engage me as a, a service provider, but just to um, shoot the breeze about what the journey's like. I think the more people share stories about their own journey, the better. Um, so I'm always happy to have a chat with anyone about what they're going through and the challenges and and how they can do it. But, you know, I, I think find a guiding principle. And, and as I said, mine is about um, how can I add value? If, if you focus on value, then you'll find a customer that you like who likes you, you'll enjoy doing business with them and you'll provide a great service. If you're starting with trying to sell something, then you might have some short-term success, but at the end of the day, sales will go up and down. But if you're always to add value to people, how can I add value to this person today? It's going to change your world in, in a much better way. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Wade. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email Derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.